One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraberti. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Welcome back. It's Series 2, Mark. How exciting. How have you been? It is exciting. It's been a bit of a wait, hasn't it? But we are back. I've been all right, Michael. It was nice to see you in person once or twice. Yes, we even watched some football together. But what else have you been doing? Um, Yeah, no, mostly that, actually. I did go to the Edinburgh Festival. That was quite a big thing, I suppose. As And you visited as well, didn't you? Yes, I did indeed. I've been thinking about boys and um, running a marathon, so it's been exciting for me as well. But we have also been recording some more brilliant guests for this lovely Here podcast, which has been exciting. Uh, yes, and what we should do at this juncture is thank the Patreon people who have seen us through this fallow period while we got ourselves back together. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much to Kathy, Vicky, Lauren, Dominique, Eric and Sam. Thank you for joining us. And also uh, a special thanks to Becky and Lauren who have gone up a grade in their subscription. I don't know if grade is the word, but you get the point. They've decided we're worth slightly more money than they previously thought. So <laughs> thank you to Becky and Lauren. <laughs> Which is very generous. If you would like to join us or indeed reassess how much you think we're worth, then do go over to patreon.com forward stroke Menkind podcast. So who do we have this week, Mark? Well, we've pulled out the stops, I think it's fair to say, for the season opener. We have none other than Tim Minchin. <sighs> Tim, of course, extremely highly regarded and successful musician, comedian, writer of uh, famous musicals, also TV writer and a renaissance man, basically. Lovely hair, a lovely guy. Lovely eyes and a dad. We spoke about that a lot, which was lovely. Um, Enjoy. Let us know what you think afterwards. Hi, everyone. I'm Mark Watson, as per. Michael Chakraverti is in another window. Hello, Michael. Hello. Still here, as per. And today we're joined by, well, no lesser figure... Actually, no more a figure either than Tim Minchin. The exact equivalent of Tim Minchin is Tim Minchin. Hi, Tim. Hello, Mark. We couldn't have more booked Tim Minchin. (laughs) To the extent that this show had a gap approximately the shape and mass of me, I have just landed right in it. You couldn't be a snugger fit, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) How are you, Tim? We're talking to you across a time difference. Of course, it's the morning for us, so it's one of these unpleasant situations where the guest has wine and we don't. Yeah, another one of those. Yet. (laughs) I'm pretty good. It's nice to see you, Watto. I haven't spoken to you for six months. No, we've exchanged communications, haven't we? Texts. Yeah. Yeah, every now and then, a little banter. Yes. Nothing of any substance. That's the way to go. Totally forgettable bullshit, yeah, but still. (laughs) There and gone, like so many of the moments that make up our time on Earth. Yeah. But yeah, nice to see you too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We haven't actually asked him to introduce himself yet, which is sort of lax of us, but just in case someone is listening and thinks, who the fuck is this? Who are you, Tim? I'm Tim Minchin. I'm a sort of Australian guy. Uh, who's lived about the place. No arguments so far from me. If there's anything remarkable about me, it's that I've gone in a few different directions. So I write musicals and I 
I have done a bit of comedy and I act and make telly shows and write speeches and poems and sound off on the internet from time to time sound off on the internet but very very rarely these not days. as much these days yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i'm gonna ask our first question tim and hopefully we'll just get cracking from there we always ask people about their first brush up with masculinity but what do you think of when we say masculinity and when do you first remember kind of seeing that well i'm gonna be one of those unsurprisingly to watson anyway i'm gonna be annoying in that i i sort of I don't really know. I mean, when I hear the term masculinity, I guess what pops into my head is cliche of the thing, you know, Conan the Barbarian or something. That's only because cliches pop up. I don't ever remember thinking that that's what masculinity was. I mean, I can't picture particularly thinking of an aspirational archetype. I don't think I watched Indiana Jones and thought I want to be that guy. Or that men are meant to be like that. Mm. I mean, I've just, it's just your dad, isn't it? Isn't it always your dad? I mean, it's my dad, I suppose. It's often your dad, yeah. It's Watson's dad. <laughs> yeah, it's Chris Watson. <laughs> yeah, Chris Watson. For someone that sees himself as just a chemistry teacher, he doesn't understand the worldwide exposure and influence that he's had <laughs> over an incredible spectrum of men. Yeah. I've got a good dad, though. I've got a cracking yeah. dad. I mean, you have got a cracking I've met your dad. He's as big an influence on me as my dad on you, I suppose. <laughs> but you, you're saying you never specifically felt like you had to emulate him or follow in his footsteps. Obviously, you haven't followed in his footsteps. You've gone in a very different direction from your siblings. And Well, I hope I've followed in his footsteps in the ways that matters, you know, mm. or at least I aspire to still. I'd still aspire to be a man like my dad, which is interesting because, well, dad was born in 1948 and my dad was a surgeon and his dad was a surgeon and, you know, his dad was quite a fairly traditional kind of guy, you know, slightly domineering. That's not fair, but, you know, just a sort of man who yeah. had the last say and a, a much younger wife. So my dad, I guess, could have belonged to that generation, could have been brought up to emulate that generation, but he met my mum very young and mum kind of moulded him into something else. My mum is not a, um, she's not a shrinking violet. No, she's a growing violet, if anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, and dad's just, he's the sort of guy I'd like to be, really. And I think I fail on a couple of measures. Like what? But I'd do other things better. Not better, but I'd, I've got other attributes that allow me to do things that he couldn't have done, I suppose. In what ways do you think you're not living up to or not emulating him? Because I, I have similar thoughts about my own dad quite a lot. Well, even as I say that, I guess I don't necessarily want to because I think I want to be the sort of person that brings happiness to other people. And I don't mean by making you laugh when you buy a ticket to my shows. I want to be the sort of person that in their lives, I'm a, I'm a good, calm, kind, mm. gentle, stable uh, energy. And my dad's all those things. Although I think that is partly that he grew up in an era where his privilege was relatively unchecked you know he can be calm and in himself and at ease with himself and have this very stable centered self-esteem we live in a time now where we're much more aware of the ways in which it's not necessarily appropriate to just be fine and relaxed in the world that we should be more agitated because it's arguably a moral obligation to be more agitated because we see more of the world now. You're right, yeah. Sorry, that was a bit of a digression. Well, no, interesting digression. I could have done with being in that generation, I think. I I'm agitated enough as it is without living in a time where we all understand that we have an obligation to be. I would quite like to be a man in a time when you could just pretty much hang in there and be stable, but there we are. 
Yeah. How do you negotiate that, Tim? The kind of reckoning of privilege, I suppose. And how do you process that? Well, I think there's a lot to be learned from the idea that one should be aware of one's privilege all the time is helpful and fraught. Mm. It's helpful because the world should be aware of unfairness and privilege. It's fraught in that it's a slippery slope because everyone is privileged over someone and, and the crasser you get with your definitions of privilege. I know that whiteness is a privilege and maleness is a privilege. I'm not, I'm not stupid. But if you think it's that simple, that only white males can be privileged, then you're missing the whole point. Yeah, Everyone can benefit with being aware of the ways in which luck has privileged them over others. Yeah. However, there is an implication in all this discussion that people are not aware of that. And I am crippled by my knowledge of that. I'm not anymore. I've had to work on it, but I was feeling crippled by my understanding of privilege. But not only that, I'm a privileged fundamentalist in that because I don't believe in free will and I'm a determinist because I understand that there's an unbroken causal chain between the big bang and the fact that I have a nice house. Even between the big bang and the fact you're sitting here doing this, in fact. Even between the big bang and you interrupting me, Watson. <laughs> I didn't have free will over that, obviously. It was determined on that big bang day as everything else. <laughs> so I'm aware that everything is privilege. Every single thing, including one's capacity to contemplate privilege. So in terms of how it plays into trying to be a good man, just to fast forward the conversation, lest it get completely obtuse. This thing that I admire in men, or, and I'm only saying men because we're talking about maleness, I guess I admire it in everyone, but to the extent that we're talking about masculinity, if not maleness, the thing I admire is this type of calm, this kind of at-peaceness requires some decision to not be anxious about everything all the time and being constantly aware of one's privilege is not well one can constantly be aware of it but constantly wrestling with it is damaging to mental health and mm. when your mental health is damaged you're no good to the people around you or at least you're less able to be good to the people around you so you've got to find a way of living alongside your privilege gratefully but without allowing the knowledge of it to weigh you down to the point where you can't do anything yeah and just like all philosophical contemplations whether it's privilege or just meaning or you know your role in society or whatever yes alongside is a really good way of putting it i guess you have to do the wrestling and then let it the fuck go a bit so that you can get on with being kind to the people around you and keeping your circle of responsibility not so big that you do nothing for anyone right yeah so my reckoning with this has been about going okay who do I want to be in the world? I don't want to be an agitated, Twitter-addicted, virtue-signaling, righteous prick, but I also don't want to be a, oh, I'm totally fine, I've got my house, like, look after number one, you know? And so somewhere in there is how do I leverage my power and my privilege to do good in the world and to what extent am I comfortable with that? Make those choices, hold yourself to account in that regard pay your fucking tax, and then decrease your circle of responsibility to a manageable size where you can actually be good and kind to the people to whom you owe goodness and kindness. As usual, I've learned quite a lot from listening to you, but specifically what I've learned in the past 30 seconds, I do have a balancing payment to make on my tax. <laughs> <laughs> Should have been done by now. 
You mentioned earlier, the first thing that springs to mind is the idea of the kind of cliched man, yeah. which is the kind of butch macho man. But you've always kind of recognised that as a cliche. Is that fair to say? I think that's right. Yeah, I think so. At least I don't have a memory of not recognising it for what it was. I mm. The reason I bring it up is that people often say that it's the media that makes people think of men in that particular way. Yeah. And it's interesting, therefore, that you didn't, even though it was in the media around you. So I guess the question is, it's quite a big one. I'm not sure whether you can answer it as the authority on all media, obviously. <laughs> Where does that image come from? Why have we decided that's the image of masculinity, do you think? Well, I think we like to think that cultural memes in the in the old sense in the real sense in the dawkinsian sense um cultural memes are like especially damaging ones are someone's fault you know people make the mistake all the time of blaming the patriarchy and thinking that means blaming men the patriarchy isn't men the patriarchy is a structure mm. that emerged that damages everyone but keeps women oppressed obviously but it's not like currently living men are the patriarchy. It's not a group of six guys that just have a uniform with a big P on the back, yeah. No, it's not a bunch of blokes. Exactly. It's an emergent property of everything. It's an emergent property of evolution and cultural evolution, psychological, you know. And yes, there's been power exerted by men and all that. But these things emerge. So you're right, Michael, I have no idea. You could track it, couldn't you? There'd be books on the emergence of the archetypal male, but you can't disconnect it. There'll be a line all the way from pre-sapien, you know, great apes. And, you know, the other day, uh, this amazing Australian swimmer, Ariana Titmus, mm -hmm. she won the 100 and the 200 metres freestyle. And her coach celebrated her win. And it Got a bit of talk on the internet, mostly, oh, look how happy this guy was. But he was like whooping and like shaking the barrier and like, woo! Like, and I caught a bit of crap on Facebook. Now I'm off Twitter. You know, people going, oh, this is just a manifestation of toxic masculinity. Like, why did he have to? And I'm like, he just looked like a chimp. <laughs> he just looked exactly like a chimp. Like we all are. Go to the zoo. <laughs> he is celebrating like that. Maybe, of course, you can't disconnect anything we do these days from culture and from the emergent masculine things we do. But if you cut to her family in Noosa watching the telly, all the women were jumping around like chimps too. Like, we're just a bunch of chimps is your point. <laughs> we are a bunch of chimps. And I understand that you don't want to be reductionist about that. And there's so many problems with the idea of attributing human behaviour to our ancestral roots. Because mm, it gets us off the hook for a start. It gets us off the hook, but it doesn't mean you could throw it away. <laughs> mm. And so I suppose the masculine archetype is very connected to these... <laughs> I mean, it's big frickin' pecs and strength and I'd be interested to know where do you guys reckon the um, silent brooding type, the Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, you know, doesn't say much part of it comes from, less about the big arms and the big chest, which I think is a sort of probably a strange chimp-like throwback. But where does the brooding thing come from? Because I'm not very good at that. I think that might come from a kind of like mass cultural it's sort of like you were saying, men have always kind of had the privilege of sitting there, not saying or doing that much, allowing a household to run itself. Mm. Men have often been credited with kind of being, you know, the brains of the operation. There's a kind of traditional type of man that basically got to just sit and do fuck all and be either clever or outstanding or yeah. academic or whatever it was. And 
often seems like the sort of strong silent type in movies is basically the embodiment of that I don't know. fairly specifically male thing. I'm only making this up off the top of my head. I but- know what you mean. No, totally. But it's often the working class man, you know, like in Streetcar Named Desire, you know, he doesn't say much until he says, still, until he is an ape. Yeah. You know, and the Clint Eastwood character doesn't say much until he's saying it with a gun and it's this quiet action, man. It's the repression idea of rather than... Exactly, like repression is the archetype. Yeah. Michael, did you get that growing up? I felt, well, I grew up gay, which I think we've spoken about quite a lot on this podcast, but I mean, I remain gay. I didn't grow up and then change after that. No, you've been very consistent. Been consistent with I it. I grew up gay and then I took a ship <laughs> to straight land. <laughs> but like, I think there's an element of repression kind of built into that, isn't there, where you totally. you do hold on to certain feelings, but drawing it out into masculinity i think well my dad is a strong silent type lots of guests that we've had on have spoken about their fathers i mean even yourself included as being a bit quieter a, a bit more gentle and a bit able to kind of process things i don't quite know where it comes from though i think it does feel cultural something that popped into my mind was has it come from power has it come from the ability to do so well, yeah which is sort of what watson was saying yeah i, I guess there's something about how expectations play on all of us and this era we're living in now where I think we are going to continue to see an epidemic of anxiety because Mm. I do think sapiens have a limited capacity to get hold of information and know what to do with it. Mm. We have this technology that allows it all to come in but we don't really know how to let it out which is why there's so much anger and fury on the internet but also even if you're not an angry tweeter or you're not a social justice warrior on Instagram or whatever it's still coming in. You're still taking in too much information. And it's coming in in greater volumes than ever, right? Our capacity to receive information has never been so out of step with our capacity to deal with it. Exactly. And yet we even we seem to be keeping up. Man, we can watch movies with 20 jokes every 10 seconds. We used to have one every 20 seconds, you know. Yeah. But is it a surprise that it comes at a cost? Anyway, back to our father's generation, I guess they went, well, what are the expectations on me? You know, all they read is the local paper, their area of concern, depending on who they were, but I can speak to my father. He wanted to live up to his father's expectations, I guess. He was high achieving, you know, captain of swimming, captain of athletics, captain of school, surgeon, nailed that, found a wife, got his surgical practice, which he inherited off his father, paid his tax, contributed to a couple of local causes, coached some hockey teams. I mean... You know, they're modest, you know, they're not fancy. They didn't show off, you know, they sent their four kids to private schools and that was how they spent their money. Like like they just went, this is our value system. This is our area of concern. And once that was nailed, it was just crack on, you know, and, and yeah. that would allow you a sense of peace, a sense of quiet ownership over your achievement of your goals of society's goals for you and now i'm interested in taking it back to you tim obviously you've lived a different version of well of life from that you've taken kind of anything but quiet ownership of your life i'd say and a thing i often wish that is that i'd sort of either met you earlier or at least had access to kind of documentary footage of you before i met you because the first time i saw you it was quite a specific form of stage presence which i don't know you're wearing eyeliner or whatever you were sort of i suppose neither masculine nor feminine exactly but you certainly had you'd had a different bearing from most people i'd seen on stage other than famously androgynous rock stars who one would 
imagined to have been influences on you. But when I got to know you, I found out that you hadn't actually listened to much pop music or seen these guys. So I'm gradually fumbling towards a question, which is the times we've spoken about your life pre being a well-known performer, you often make remarks about being overweight or uneasy with yourself. Or would you say that the incarnation of you that became known as a performer is kind of uh, consciously different from who you were before? Did it release you from certain norms or did you find it gradually? Or what's the difference between yourself growing up and the version of you that we all met, I suppose, is what I'm interested in. I don't know. You could ask Sarah, you know. Should have got her on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She thinks I've changed a bit. But I think you would if you brought up in Perth and then you lived all around the world and, yeah. you know, a lot of stuff changed for us and a lot of different things came to me that I never thought I would have attention and all that crap. Mm. It's a really complicated question and probably boring. I'm a bit of a weird case probably, but the things I know is I turned out to be a sort of pseudo queer presenting performer, right? Mm. I started in a boys' private school for 11 years where gay slurs were 20 times a minute and, you know, homophobia was completely normal and sexism and boysy crap in the 80s and 90s. And then I ended up in a place where I couldn't be more queer adjacent, I suppose, and have in my career been furious in terms of my activism for some reason, which I could unpack probably because I went to school in a homophobic environment, mm. it's made me angrier than anything. And, you know, I've got a, an almost definitely gay daughter and, you know, like I just, I live in a very queer world. So that's neither here nor there, I suppose. What I do know is I never felt, and I think Watson, you and I are different in this for a few different reasons. I never felt not man enough. Uh-huh. Mm. I have never felt not man enough, ever. The couple of times I've been like punched in the head by an ice addict on the street, I've fantasized about I was bigger than that guy. Why couldn't I, you know, but I've also known all my life I've got pretty good running legs and that's the way to get away from getting punched in the head, you know. And that's why it's only been a couple of times. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> we're similar in that regard, at least. I also am able to run quite fast if I have to. Yeah, we're good runners. Oh, I was running around the tan in Melbourne thinking about you the other day. What's I that? very much miss running there. That's one of our runs. So weirdly, I've never felt, masculine pressure particularly and I think that's because my parents very kind and just accepted us but also because I was just a good athlete and I fulfilled them Mm. you know what's really interesting though like we spoke with Mark about a similar thing on our last series of this podcast self-deprecation features as quite a large part of Mark's comedy and I think to an extent it's quite a lot of your comedy and your stuff as well quite I know (laughs) yeah well but it's different right it is different right he destroys himself he's so low status whereas my low status is almost a trick to then justify my high status that's exactly right yeah it's quite a big difference right so self-deprecation has never really featured in your comedy in the same way essentially oh no i mean it definitely does it does come from a different place psychologically though there's no doubt about that yeah well at least i'm always making sure i'm gonna take it back but i diss on myself a lot as a sort of who the fuck would want to be this guy sort of thing Mm-hmm. in the sort of rock and roll nerdy sense. I mean, I have a different thing going on in that I have something weird with my self-esteem. It's different from Watson's thing. But this is, I mean, masculinity is always a bit of a dance, isn't it? It's like I have a sense of myself as a person that is strong and fine and good and smart. And as I say, I've never had a sort of masculinity issue because I happen to be a cisgendered straight guy 
you know, almost six foot tall and I quite like sport, you know, or whatever the cliches are. Mm. But on the other side, I've got something really fucking dodgy with my self-esteem going on. Don't I, what they? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And don't men all, isn't that the dance? I mean, isn't there something going on with dudes well, yeah. and self-esteem? Yeah, for sure. It's kind of what we're always talking about, isn't it, Michael? The performative aspect of masculinity. But your relationship with your own self-regard is an area of unending interest to me because... Well, can we talk about the weird thing you have going on with it? I mean, as you know, I sort of quite simplistically look at you as having an aspirational level of confidence, aspirational for someone like me. Yeah. But it's never that simple, of course. But I mean, what do you think your weird thing with self-esteem consists of if you had to try and nail it down? Well, I have a problem with thinking that I am good enough. Like I'm basically in a lifelong, getting better, but a lifelong ebb and flow of mm -hmm. I have realized in the last 15 years when my career has been beyond my wildest dreams that there appears to be no amount of evidence that can fix whatever protein bridges that were built at whatever time in my life that said, you're a bit ugly and a bit like not very good. And, you know, like, see, I say this sort of stuff on a podcast and it becomes canon, you know. Mm. I'm just having a think about there's something there uh, we'll put a thing at the start if you want saying please ignore all of this <laughs> yeah no there's something in performers like me and you Watto, and i don't know about you michael the thing that makes me driven and i am definitely driven yeah. is a hole that needs filling uh, yeah that's all i can say about it really and i love it i mean it can be a bit tiring yeah but it keeps me moving you know i don't think there's many people that would say though that they've achieved absolutely everything they want to achieve no. everyone is a whole as it were that needs filling it's <laughs> <laughs> such a disappointment that you're just such a cliche michael i'm so sorry honestly <laughs> we have to take out quite a lot of this stuff every episode you said the whole thing earlier and i held off at that point. i did you, you held on to it you <laughs> held on to my hole <laughs> the episode where michael spoke to me was named wiring problem after something you said to me about 18 months ago one of the last times i saw you because of the uh, current situation which was that mm. it was about this very thing you were saying that i would never find an amount of evidence or it wasn't possible to do that purely by accumulating anything career-wise or life-wise no, of course not because and again you, you described it as a wiring problem and you talked about it in quite kind of purely neurological terms i suppose like you did there with the protein bridges and i've toyed with this idea quite a bit recently mm ever since i last saw you really is it helpful yeah like a lot of ideas you've given me it is helpful it helps to understand your brain is not purely a thing under your own control i suppose basically no it's so important you know i i find it kind of liberating to think of some things as being predetermined because i hold myself much too responsible for far too much stuff anyway the point is it's refreshing to hear you say that you essentially also have the same it's a different shaped hole mm. but it's sort of the same principle and I'm always trying to live up to you, remember. So if you also feel like that, it should be proof to me that there is actually not one fucking person out there that yeah. has got this nailed. And if you did have it, as you say, you wouldn't be driven anymore. You'd stop doing stuff. Well, it's such a sort of error we're making. You know, I talk in my show these days about the hedonic treadmill. It's a completely almost universal psychological thing that we pursue things we think are going to make us happier that and we've evolved to do so to get our endorphins and our serotonin and whatever we need sexual conquest of course in an evolutionary sense and power and whatever culture and evolution has made us want we identify something we need and if we achieve it it gives us a buzz for a little bit and then it becomes our new zero mm. they talk about hedonic regression you go back to zero right 
and then you need something new. And it's so, I mean, this is all, this Buddhism's built around these questions. I, I was talking to my boy the other day who's 12 and, you know, you get stressed by stuff. You know, he worries about growing up and he worries about all sorts of stuff. And he's the second most anxious of my children. And I said, Casper, you don't understand, mate. You're so lucky. All you have to do is like keep playing a bit of music every day and just get through school. You'll go do an arts degree like everyone in your entire extended family did. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. You'll be a really good music producer. You know, you'll probably write a couple of novels because you're a beautiful writer. And all you have to do is you don't need anything. You just need to be kind and happy and play music. And it's, it's so easy. I found myself saying it's just so easy. Like, and it is. Like, I want to say that to you because potentially we've made a mistake you're going to be too old before you realize it. And the mistake is you think your sense of self and your happiness and your belief in yourself as a man is attached to the achievement of, you know, a bigger selling book and a something. And it's just incorrect. It's just completely incorrect. It's adjacent, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Is there a way you can tell me this, but I'm 12? Not really, I guess. <laughs> you never know with technology these days. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Yeah. If there's anyone who would know about this, it's you. Yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Earlier, Mark mentioned that he kind of looks to you. Who do you look to as role models, Tim? Maybe perhaps when you were younger, I know you've mentioned your dad before, but also now. I certainly still look to my dad as a measure of a, he, he was a very, very good surgeon, but I don't admire him as a, as a high achiever. I admire him as a, a man of kindness and intelligence. And, mm. But he's, he's a very, very different dude from me. I really admire my brother, again, for the same reasons. He's very bright, but he seems to naturally get the balance right. He could be earning more and being, a, you know, but he's chosen to work for not-for-profit charities and be a better dad and all that. You said stuff about like looking up to me. When we met, there was a slightly big brotherly vibe going on, but it's long since 
you know, we're basically the same age and you're much brighter than me. I mean, I <laughs> don't seem like a good idea that you would look up to me. Yeah, you didn't ask me to. I still feel... <laughs> no, that, no, that. but I don't know if I believe it really. Oh, yeah, I do. To the extent that it's true, it's not a great idea. No, I know. A lot of things I do aren't a great idea, Tim. <laughs> I admire clear thinkers, you know, in terms of men. I, I guess I admire Sam Harris and Peter Singer, and but that doesn't mean I want to sign up to the entirety of their worldview. Of course. I think it's kind of lovely you talking to Cass and just saying, it's fine, it's easy, yeah. just do your stuff. Are yeah. you conscious of being someone that he will be heavily influenced by? Like, how do you picture your status as someone for him to look up to given that you had that relationship with your dad yeah i think having a dad like me is probably not the best thing you could do to a kid i don't think having a dad in the public eye is great mm. i don't think having a dad who has a reputation for being and i say this with a massive wry smile on my face i have a reputation for being smart and overachieving to the extent that i do what a horrible fucking thing <laughs> to do to your kids you know that isn't overachieving yeah well <laughs> like literally like how do you sit down and play the piano when it looks so easy to someone else and yeah. for my kids hearing me play the piano they must just go oh what the f i'm that's i'm never gonna get there you know yeah it's really antisocial of you yeah could you fuck it up a bit on purpose when they're there yeah exactly um <laughs> and of course they don't see all the weaknesses because it's my job to not show them mm. They do, actually, of course, see the weaknesses. I'm lucky my daughter's neurodiverse. My daughter's autistic and smarter than me. I mean, she's so bright, and I don't think she cares. Although only time will tell, but I don't think she doesn't want to be a musician. She's a great actress, but she doesn't want to be an actress. She wants to be a psychologist. Like lots of autistic girls do. They're like, I'm going to figure out humans. And I'm going to apply my knowledge. I should have it done pretty soon. <laughs> I should have it done pretty soon. She is unbelievable, her knowledge. She's very smart, all right. I think Casper, I desperately want him to be okay in himself. I can see he's 12 and he talks about having a chubby face and being too chubby and he's talking about being dumb and I can't bear it. I fucking just can't bear it. Yeah. I wouldn't want him to have my body thing. I mean, that's so boring. I mean, I, it's worked out all right for me because it just keeps me running, you know, but it's mm. boring to live for 46 years going, <laughs> so fucking boring. Which is interesting, actually. You talk about, you know, some chamber of your brain labeling you all the time, fat and ugly and stuff like that. And that's an area of insecurity that I don't really have. I have very few physical convictions about myself, positive or negative. Yeah, but you're so handsome and trim. <laughs> That's the thing. I'm fucking good looking. Yeah, I suppose it's that. You could look like Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you could be born that beautiful. You just go, yeah, you had a hard time growing up gay, but you were hot, bro. Fuck you. Man. <laughs> I don't want to hear about your fucking sob story. He's really young as well. Do you know what? It's really interesting, yeah. though. I can relate to your son. Like, I was really chubby when I was younger, and I really hated my body and how I looked when I was younger. And that's what keeps me exercising now. Yeah. Um, you guys are losers. I just run because it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> but you said, Tim, that you're, I don't know whether it was just like a turn of phrase, but you said that part of your job as a dad is not to show the frailties or the flaws. Mm. Do you think that? No, I, I don't actually. And what I mean is, as a parent, one doesn't burden them with right. yeah. the problems you have. Uh, you know, life is full of challenges. And, mm. you know, I don't sit my kids down and go, my mum's got a terminal illness and my daughter's autistic and my entire business is closed down. And, mm. you know, they don't need to know that stuff. So I guess I'm, I don't mean my weaknesses. I actually, weirdly, 
I'm writing a script at the moment and I wrote exactly that little monologue from a character who said, I thought my job was to keep smiling through and to show them how to be strong, but I realise now that I should have been showing them how to be weak. Mm, that's great. Mm. Which is an interesting idea because you want to show your kids how to be resilient, how to be honourable, so how to be strong, definitely, but you need to show them the manner in which it's important to be vulnerable, I suppose, and that this is tough stuff yeah. as parents of boys, especially in an era where the narrative that my boy is consuming is that boys are bad. Mm. I mean, without a doubt, what he is getting is that men are bad. Yeah, same for Kit, who's almost the same age. Yeah. It's a different type of parenting challenge from the generations before. Yeah. I guess that kind of leads quite nicely into the last question, which we ask. It does, actually. Well done, Michael. Thank you. About embedding three qualities into a person for the future. And that's sort of, I guess, what you're doing <laughs> as a parent. Yeah, of course. But like, If you had to choose three qualities, what would you put in? I mean, all I can do is think about the men I admire. And I do. I adore Watson and I adore, you know, what O'Neill, my friend mm. and... Uh, my friend Rob, who I don't know if you've ever met, but I've told you about him. And I look at the men I love and they're all really soft men. They're gentle men. And I've got buff head mates, you know, but even the one or two friends I've got from my years at Christchurch Grammar School are the gentle, soft ones, you know. Mm, that's what endures. That's what endures. And because I am, whether or not I'm a good one, I'm an intellectual I'm a person who likes thoughts more than anything and I like modest, kind men. I don't know how to instill modesty. I want to use the word kindness, but kindness is an overused word. I think calm, if I could instill calm in my son, peace, yeah. I would, and I worry about that. And that is related to gentleness, which I guess adds up to kindness. And that we have to talk with our sons about sex because if my son grows up feeling about sex like I did. And this might be why I'm tilted a bit towards not throwing out the baby with the bathwater vis-a-vis -vis evolution. Because between the ages of 16 and 40 or 36, I felt like a fucking chimp. I felt like I needed to have sex. I needed, you know, like it's an amazing drive and it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. So your sex drive as a male when you're strong and big and drunk <laughs> and horny is a fucking dangerous thing. Yeah. And I like to think the reason I wasn't an abusive man is because of my parents. Obviously, I believe I'm giving that to my son, but I, I want to put into my son somehow with teaching and conversation a deep understanding of how his sexuality is something that he has to master and mm. and it comes back to gentleness and kindness and and i, th I worry sometimes i, I know because i had a high sex drive and i'm a you know biggish dude i know what it's like to be that guy i wonder sometimes if some parents don't know maybe some dads didn't feel like that and forget to say to their sons your sexuality is a weapon that you have to learn how to fucking take apart at the end of the day and clean and put in the drawer yeah you know don't load it you know i don't know how to talk about that i'm being a bit crass but no that's really interesting um sexual control control of one's sexuality yeah. is something we have to talk about yeah and we have to talk about it sympathetically but 
you know, it's a really tough conversation Yeah, in the current political climate, because I do understand that rage is an appropriate female reaction to history. Mm. But meanwhile, we men need to talk to our sons and say, I know you're hearing a lot of rage, but let me tell you this as well. You know, you don't have to feel guilty. It's not dirty. You're not a bad person, but it is your responsibility. And if any woman is ever, ever scared in your company, you have failed. Mm. It's the alongside thing again, isn't it? It's knowing both things to be true at the same time. Exactly. And being able to manage them both. Yeah, because you don't want kids to grow up with sexual guilt too, because that doesn't help anyone. Famously. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, there's another whole podcast in that conversation. <laughs> so we've got calm, we've got an understanding of their sexuality and having control on their sexuality. And then a final thing. What was gentleness the third thing? Well, I think gentle and calm are the same. Yeah. I think it's humour mm. and what I think is, uh, you know, Watson and I are both arguably pretty funny guys who have for long periods, wherefore we know not lost our mirth. That was Shakespeare, Michael. I worked at the RSC, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> I know you did. No, hold on. No, what? It was with Noel and I. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I get them mixed up. <laughs> you know, dealing with depression, which Watto has more than I, but is one thing. But there's also just a, you just forget to laugh because of the things we've been talking about, because... Mm. It's a strange time. We're taking in a lot of information and we are, for very good reason, checking our privilege and feeling a lot of guilt and trying to work out how to negotiate this time. It's very easy to forget that you really do need to be able to laugh at everything, yeah. at death, at the foibles of ourselves, at the sincerity of humankind. I have got off Twitter and I am laughing more. And I just I can't recommend that course of action enough to people like me who are inclined towards getting uh, worked up about stuff. See, I hear it, but I also don't want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> if you're listening to this and you follow Tim and you're now sort of at a loose end because he's not putting the same amount of content onto Twitter, Michael and I will happily hoover up your custom. I <laughs> know <laughs> I hear you though. Yeah. It's full of just anger. And like, even when there's like a funny meme going around, there's fury underneath yeah, it. It's and there's no way away from it. But I also, how would I fill my days? <laughs> exactly. Well, I still, I'm like three months in or something. It's wearing off, but I still go, oh, where's that thing I used to get? Where's that dopamine hit of people saying nice things about me? And, and the, the equal and opposite dopamine hit of outrage, which is there's a lot of studies on it now. Mm -hmm. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. Twitter is terrible for humankind. I know it's good as well, but I think the terrible outweighs. Twitter's like all religions. It's slightly more bad than good. <laughs> yeah, it has its uses. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. It got us this far, but we have to move on. So laughter. And that's why I love my beautiful, gentle, sexually controlled, funny friends. <laughs> that's what I look for in men. And it's probably why most of my friends are gay as well. Because, uh, <laughs> I don't know if they're sexually controlled, but they're funny and gentle. I think you have to be to an extent. Yeah. Again, that's a topic for another podcast. That's yes. a whole other podcast. We're going to do a sexy podcast. <laughs> I'll do like music behind the whole thing. If you could work on some sexy things for us <laughs> and then we'll get back in touch when, when we fleshed out the idea a bit. I'll just bring a fretless bass and all my ideas about sex. <laughs> <laughs> and we can call it the hole that needs filling. There we are. <laughs> All people are holes. Everyone's a hole. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. This has been really, really wonderful. Yeah. Pleasure. I'm going to go about my day being beautiful, funny and sexually controlled now. <laughs> okay, good.
That's really, really nice to talk to you. You are lovely to talk to you as always, Tim. We ask everyone if there's anything they'd like to plug. Is there anything that you'd like to direct people towards? Obviously not your Twitter anymore. Nah, just, I don't know. I'm, I'm writing the second season of my TV show, Upright. Yes, I think people will look forward to that. And if you haven't watched the first season of my TV show, Upright, then you're, um, you're missing life. <laughs> yeah, that's less a plug, more a kind of uh, harsh wake-up call. But Upright is really, really great in case you somehow haven't seen it. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. See you soon. Thank you, Timmy. Bye. And that was Tim Minchin. What a lovely conversation. What a lovely man. I mean, I was a bit kind of starstruck, so you had to do lots of talking there. So apologies You were for that. visibly nervous. It was early in the morning as well. It's a lot to take someone like an intellect as towering as Tim Minchin when you've not even really had breakfast. Yes, but also silence isn't the most no talk. Oh, I can't speak. You still can't speak. That's, you're still nervous <laughs> even looking back on Tim Minchin. That's how much you had to step up for this one. I'm proud of you, Michael. And you know what? Talking of early morning records, the next one also lived down south. We have... The wonderful Reese Nicholson. Yes. Another early morning record with someone who was drinking while we had only just woken up, which was good for them, a bit more sad for us. Yes, it's a trend which I would like us to not continue, actually, that we suddenly talking to all these charismatic Aussies who do it with a wine while we're barely out of our pyjamas. But Reese Nicholson, uh, again, familiar, I should think, to many of our listeners, a very, very funny catty, sharp, amusing in all senses comedian and uh, good chat again. And also a recent judge on RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under for those who are less familiar. But yes a really wonderful chat and one to look forward to Um, In the meantime, between now and then I'll continue to run, Mark will continue to look at some footballs probably and um that's probably all we have to do, really. Oh, I am week. also running quite a bit. I'm just not sort of doing a marathon like You're you. You're not an athlete like I am. No, I'm not a colossus like you. I <laughs> plod along in my modest way, Michael. <laughs> I ran 20 miles last week, had seven packets of crisps and fell asleep. It was a lovely day for me. <laughs> what a <laughs> life. <laughs> well, good luck with doing that. See you next time. <laughs> Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.